cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 13th, 2012. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And really, it's all kind of really a mess because. Well, several reasons, but one of the reasons uh, is because of enthusiasm. You're thinking, well, we like people to be enthusiastic. Yeah, that's, not, <laughs> that's not what I mean by enthusiasm. What I mean by enthusiasm, enthusiasm means God withinism, something like that. And, yeah, and so the idea is, is that people in Protestant churches of all places, churches that are supposed to be, uh, churches that are in the stream of the Reformation, that they've broken off from Roman Catholicism because of the mythologies, because of the errors, because of the false teaching and the false gospel of Roman Catholicism. And you know the, the errors of the Reformation are supposed to be people who subscribe to things like, you know, Sola Scriptura, uh, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, things like that. And what's happened is, is that they've abandoned Sola Scriptura and like... Roman Catholicism, they now have multiple sources of authority when it comes to uh, to Scripture or to hearing from God. And so they, the Bible would be an authoritative text, but then I've got my experiences. Enthusiasm is this idea that God speaks to me directly. And and so my experiences, my direct visions, my dreams, uh, you know, Somehow God can just, you know, pop in and pop out. And so I'm supposed to be, you know, hearing God, apparently, apart from his word. And as a result of it, you have a twin, a twin uh, authority structure. And over and again, what we're seeing is, is that those people who set up a twin authority structure 
you know, it, it, you think it, they start to merge off of the narrow path and start to merge back onto the wide highway. You know, you know, you know when you're getting off the freeway, you know, you don't just make a hard right turn. It's like, da-da, here I am. You know, no, no, what happens is you get into a lane and that lane slowly starts to turn the other way. And the next thing you know, you know, you're off the highway and you're heading a different direction. Well, uh, it, it, what happens is, is that when you you're hearing competing voices especially voices that are subjective um, based on your personal experiences and things like that over and again um, you know you begin to rely on that and not God's Word and it's just a matter of time you're not really listening to God's Word you're listening to these voices experiences weird ideas and and uh, now your theology is all over the map and you begin to sound like Patricia King. It's just, it's one of those things. You know, think of it as a slippery slope argument of, of sorts. The problem is, is that I can document it over and again. People who may have started off, you know, in, in the general camp of orthodoxy and the Protestant Reformation, churches that uh, subscribe to the idea that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, have supplanted that, added to it, uh, watered it down, uh, hidden it, you know, all kinds of weird things, all because of their pursuit of having these spiritual experiences and having direct revelations and and all this kind of stuff. And I, I think one of the reasons why the church is in such bad shape, at least when it comes to the truth department, is because everyone's chasing after their own ideas and blaming it on God. Uh, you know, well, this is what God is leading us to do. No, God's at, told you already in his word what he wants you to do. Put that other stuff away and let's open up the book and let's see what God's word says. Now, I know this sounds really narrow-minded. It sounds kind of backwards. I mean, you're not with the times, Rose Rose. Well, I agree. I'm probably not. But uh, But the thing is, is that when we start hearing competing voices... And think that we're hearing, you know, the singular voice of God in these competing streams. I, I'm not convinced that uh, we're hearing God in these subjective. I know I can trust God's word. As far as that other stuff, yeah, I've seen the fruit that it produces, and over and again, the fruit that it produces is really, really bad. Like you know, false doctrine, strange ideas. You know, I mean, it's bizarre practices. And so what this program does is it opens back up the word and says, okay, let's take this idea, let's take this voice, let's take this vision, let's take this enthusiastic thing that you've got, and uh, let's isolate it, and then now let's compare that to what God's word really says in context. And the goal is to teach you to listen to, to trust to grow in your understanding of God's word in scripture as far as those you know those prophets and super apostles and vision casters and and folks like that um yeah when we hold their teaching up to scrutiny it always seems to come up short and i mean way short you know so um, yeah, I can trust God's word. Yeah, not those other guys, not so much. So this is all about discernment. I mean, if the Apostle Paul didn't get off the hook with the churches in Berea, you know, then we're not going to get off the hook either. None of us gets off the hook. Everything needs to be tested. That's what Scripture says. Test everything. Hold to that which is good. So we test everything, and we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, cover some of the uh, major news stories that are out there, and we do sermon reviews in the second hour too. You know, you know where I sit in and help. People kind of sort some of this thing out. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. 
Oh, man. <laughs> Looking at the news stories. We're going to cover some news stories. And thank the Lord. I am very happy about this. Today will be a Kingsway Chris Lom free edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm like burned out on Chris Lom and and this the concept of it and the whole controversy over at Saddleback re- regarding the Kingsway. I think that thing has pretty much run its course. Plus, I you know I I think we've beat this thing to death like we did the Elephant Room. Oh man, <laughs> it's seriously. I mean, it's like middle of March and and this year. I mean, three big stories so far. You know, the uh, the uh, Heresy Olympics, the Code Orange Revival, the Elephant Room 2, which I kind of didn't see that one coming. <laughs> you know, leave the premises immediately or we'll have you arrested and all of the fallout from that. And then, and now this uh, Chris Lum, you know, it's not Chris Lum, but, you know, see, here's the deal. Warren doesn't promote Chris Lum. I don't think he does. Um, you know, Warren's a Trinitarian. The problem is, is that, you know, this... Sloppy, sloppy theological work on the part of uh, of Jihad Turk and Abraham Muhlenberg, and then their reaction, you know, and Saddleback's reaction to it that really didn't, you know, didn't line up, you know, with the evidence that was out there. So, anyway, so we're gonna move along. We're gonna move along because you know, looking ahead here, you know, I, not that I can see the future, but. <laughs> I can look at a calendar. Easter's coming up. And, you know, in case you didn't know, if you're new to Fighting for the Faith, Easter is a very important time here at Fighting for the Faith because, well, for the last few years, what we've done, and we're going to do it again this year, is that, uh, you know, the the week after Easter, and here's the deal, it takes me a while to collect them all. So it's not, it's like Easter's on a Sunday, Okay. So what happens is, is the week immediately following, I have to gather up contestants, and then the following week, we have the worst Easter sermon of the year contest, and and so if you you know during uh, the you know the week immediately following Easter, if you have a candidate or somebody that you, whose sermon you would like to have considered for the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Email it to me, and you know, and we'll screen it and, and consider it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to narrow it down so that the following week we actually play, you know, five, six, seven depends because we've actually had more than five. You know, we're going to narrow it down to the finalists, and then we're going to play them and review them with the idea that at the end of it you will vote. You will get the opportunity to vote at the Fighting for the Faith website. And decide who wins the coveted prize of the worst, you know, of, of the per- pastor who preached the worst Easter sermon of that year. And so, and then you're thinking, really? Yeah, yeah. That's what we. One of the things we do here. Now, your question, the question immediately, I'm sure, would come up for those of you who are new to fighting for the faith is, why would I want to do that? What's 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 the what's the idea here? Well, the idea here is this, is that over and again, we're finding in churches that call themselves Christian on, you know, the day that, you know, Christianity, well, for the past few millennia has celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's really what Easter's all about, is it not? Celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, in fact, you know, coming, you know, those of you who follow the lectionary and and attend churches that are more liturgical, uh, you know, you know, getting we're winding down Lent here and we're going to be going into Holy Week very soon, you know, kicking off with Palm Sunday. And then you got Monday, Thursday, you got Good Friday and and, you know, and then, you know, I forget what they call the Saturday during that week. But anyway, maybe it's Holy Saturday. But then the idea is, is that all of this is in anticipation for and leading up to. 
kind of a real time, you know, living out, if you would, experiencing, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but uh, Jesus's death and resurrection kind of marking, you know, what happened to our crucified and risen great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, culminating in the celebration of his resurrection from the dead on Saturday. Well, one of the things I've discovered is that um, Christian churches, um, you're not doing such a good job about preaching about Jesus on Easter Sunday. It seems weird, doesn't? Don't you think? You know, like it's it's as if, well, you know, hey, ha- welcome to our church service, and hey, aren't you glad Jesus rose from the dead? Everyone, give Jesus a hand, and hey, way to go, Jesus! That neat magic trick that you rose from the dead on. On Easter Sunday, and now we're going to get to business, and we got something. We got a new sex series that we like to start to you know, dive into, and so you know, grab your uh, sermon notes and your fill in the blank sermon notes, and we're going to now talk about sex. I, that, that, I'm serious. That's <laughs> we have examples of that here at uh, the Pirate Christian Radio Studio. So what we do is we collect them up, and uh, you know, and then pitch them to you, and basically at the end of it, you get to vote who who's. I mean, Joel Osteen won a couple you know a couple years ago. I forget. I'd have to go back in time and see if I remember who are who are all of our winners. Then again, you know, creeping decrepitude has crept upon me, and uh, as a result of it, I mean, you know, I can still hide my own Easter eggs and and have hours of fun and surprises. But anyway, so you get what's going on. So what we're gonna do here, we I, I'm distracting myself. I feel like I'm like a distraction within a distraction at this point. But uh, what we're gonna do here is uh, let's see here, um, news stories that we're gonna talk about. We got a church in uh, Great Britain who's adopted a new Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. I got news regarding, um, well, um, Schuler Coleman. This would be Robert Schuler's daughter, um, senior pastor of the Crystal Cathedral, which is soon to no longer be the Crystal Cathedral. They're going to change their name and move out of their building. Uh, but she's moving along. She's breaking away from the Crystal Cathedral to do her own thing. And uh, somebody sent me a video that may explain why uh, the <laughs> Why the Crystal Cathedral itself has fallen on hard times. I'll pass that video along for you. In fact, we might even start with that. Um, we've got an emergent update. Uh, Diana Butler Bass, who is well, kind of a famous postmodern liberal type, has uh, got a uh, Washington Post story um, on is religion dying or reinventing? Is religion dying or reinventing? Uh, I got a uh, Phil Johnson story regarding you know, from Spurgeon on the sufficiency of Scripture that I would like to get to, and then we got this whole church marketing thing leading into Easter. So we got a lot of stories, and then in hour number two, I, you know, have you ever wondered why you should budget your money? I mean, we're going to be learning. We're going to be learning in our sermon today uh, why you should budget. You, you know, I didn't even know the Bible taught such principles, but. The idea here is is that if if you don't actually have a budget, well, you need to um, listen to the sermon so that you can learn the godly way to budget your money. Um, they have whole principles and stuff like that, not exactly based on Scripture, but we'll explain that in hour number two. So make yourself comfortable. We've got lots of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And with that, we are going to dive into the program proper. From the Telegraph in the UK, the headline reads, Churches Adopt New Ten Commandments. Can you do that? (laughs) Can a church... Correct me if I'm wrong here. Hang on a second here. I'm just thinking about this this idea. 
Um, can an individual congregation or an individual pastor just chuck and, you know, trash and, you know, can the Ten Commandments that are found in Exodus chapter 20 and just adopt new ones? I mean, does a pastor or an individual congregation have the authority to do that? I, I thought that kind of stuff was above their pay grade, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm just being old school. All right, this story is written by Hannah Furness of The Telegraph. Again, headline is, Churches Adopt New Ten Commandments, subhead, Hundreds of Churches Across the Country, this is Great Britain, are now preaching an updated version of the Ten Commandments, rewritten to reflect modern values. Hmm. All right, Hannah writes, she says, The religious rules which Christians believe were etched onto tablets by God and given to Moses have been modified uh, to use up-to-date language and principles. Inspired by last year's riots, the new vows include manage your anger, no God, catch your breath, and are to be used in more than 600 churches in Britain. Oh, man. The original thou shalt not steal has become prosper with a clear conscience, and the lengthy thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain becomes, well, take God seriously. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you, I know if you're listening to this, you're going, are you serious? Are you serious? The, well, unfortunately, I'm serious. I'm not making this up. You know, there's actually a video for this. Hang, hang on a second. Here, here's the adver, uh, advertisement, ad, advertisement for the new Ten Commandments. Here we go. Starting on Wednesday the 15th of September in the evening here at Christchurch in Billericay, we're going to be running a course called Just Ten. Over the course of ten weeks, we're going to be studying the Ten Commandments, the Maker's Instructions, the Laws of Love. Week by week, we'll be looking at a different relevant topic, something that's relevant to our lives now. Find contentment. Hold to the truth. Prosper with a clear conscience. A fair proof your relationships. Manage your anger. Keep the peace with your parents. Catch your breath. Take God seriously. Know God. Live by priorities. Can I ask the obvious question? How are you supposed to know God if you're not actually, you know, reading his word and listening to what he said? You know, listening to his values, not your own. Here's this pastor, again, in Bellaricki, talking about this. So if you'd like to come to Just 10, or if you've got any questions, you can telephone me on 65265. Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to give his full number up. (laughs) He might get some strange phone numbers, phone calls. Anyway, uh uh-huh. Okay, so um, the commandments designed by popular evangelical preacher J. John have been praised by religious leaders for bringing practical advice to modern congregations uh, using short simple language interspersed with slang the new rules have now been released on a dvd called just 10 for churches aimed at providing guidance hmm the 10th commandment for example has altered the biblical thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant nor his maidservant nor his ox nor his ass nor anything that is thy neighbor's to well, just find contentment. There, they find contentment. See, that's that, oh, that sounds just life changing. There, um, thou shalt not commit adultery has been edited to affair proof your relationships. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Not your married relation, just any old relationships. And honor thy father and mother has been altered to keep the peace with your parents. J. John claims that his commandments enable everyone to understand God's timeless principles on how we should live 
and he said he was inspired to write them by last summer's riots. He said, along with a lot of people, I think about the way we live nowadays and what leads people to do the sorts of things that happened in the riots, whether or not we have forgotten something about a good way of living. The Reverend Paul Roberts, 54, vicar of St. John the Evangelist in Old Coolsden, Surrey, uh, which dates back to uh, 1210 A.D., is among those using the New Commandments. He said it's basically a way of presenting the Ten Commandments to help people connect with them in a positive way. Rather than just seeing them as a list of things you shouldn't do, it's meant to help people uh, live as God intended for our good. Unlike the do's and don'ts, most people imagine when quizzed about the Maker's instructions, the message is meant to be both a challenge and an encouragement. Can, can I point out the obvious here? You notice that the folks, these pastors, think that they know better than God <laughs> how to teach this. Wow. Um, <laughs> makes me want to, like, run for cover. You know, I, it makes me glad that I live on the other side of the pond. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> anyway, Wayne Dulson, 40, uh, uh, he was 40, minister of the Loughton Baptist Church in Essex, said, people are really engaged with the Ten Commandments in a new and fresh Way, yeah, because those old Ten Commandments, they were really stale. Yeah, they were kind of like hardtack, you know, like manna in the desert. Who wants that stuff? Anyway, people now see these commandments not as a set of rules, but as a template for living so that we can experience God's best for our lives. All Ten Commandments were extremely challenging, especially as the series helped us see them in context of modern day living. People kept telling me how Just Ten has made them think much more about how they live their lives and also about how much they have learnt about the commandments as they found out things they never knew before. Steve Jenkins, a spokesman for the Church of England, said they supported new ways of communicating and added the Book of Common Prayer is very clear that the faith needs to be taught afresh in every generation. So even former conservative Shadow Home Secretary Anne Wiedekum, uh who uh, left the Church of England after objecting to women priests, has backed... <laughs> J. John's rules. That's right. So, you know, you, you know, wow. Even liberals, theological liberals are supporting it. Shock of shocks. So I'd say it's not a patch on Moses, but it's not a bad set of rules, really, she said. Uh, what he, what he's trying to do is offer a modern take on the original to explain it in modern audience, which is fine as long as he doesn't dispense with the original. Um, Yeah, Um, I don't think the Just Ten quite get the point. <laughs> Oh, man. So there you go. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's kind of weird. You can just make up your own Ten Commandments and just call it fresh. You know, it's a fresh take on... Um, <clears throat> anyway. All right. Moving along here. Before we... Uh, well, before I read this uh, story regarding um, Robert Schuler's daughter breaking away from the Crystal Cathedral, uh, the uh, FBC Jack's Watchdog Vimeo account... Uh, has, well, an explanation, a video that may explain why the Crystal Cathedral itself has fallen on hard times. Here is um, uh, Robert Schuler's daughter, uh, that would be um, Pastor Sheila Schuler Coleman. Um, well, um, I'll let it her explain. She's preaching at the Crystal Cathedral here. You'll get it here. Hang on. Stay standing because we're, we're looking at God's word. We're looking at the be attitudes of Jesus Christ. We're not just going to have the attitudes of Jesus Christ. We're going to be the attitudes of Jesus Christ. We're going to be. 
We're going to be the attitudes of Jesus Christ. A new attitude. So stay standing because if you feel like singing and participating in this theme song, you do it. Okay? Let's do it. Stay standing. So she's having everyone at the Crystal Cathedral stand so they can sing this theme song about um, the be attitude. You, you need to be the attitude. <laughs> This was a Christian song. I had no idea. Yeah, I got I got a new B attitude. I have no idea what this has to do with Jesus. <laughs> Again, I we, we expecting a lot to have <clears throat> Sheila Schuler Coleman preach about Jesus correctly. This week, when you get an email that you don't like. When you get, get those daily get news from your doctor that you don't like. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. When you wake up in the morning and discover that your husband went to bed and left a pile of dirty dishes in the sink. Mm, pleading the fifth. You're not going to let that fear, you're not going to let that negative thoughts get you down. Oh, you'll be tempted to. Yes, you will. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of all of your moaning and groaning and complaining and negative thinking, you're going to remember this. And you're going to do it. Ready? I want you all to do it with me. Oh, no. Ooh, 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 ooh. Uh, no, 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 this is not Christian preaching. Oh, my. I got a new attitude. All right? You do it. You can be seated. Yeah, I, I, I happen to agree with the guy who runs his Vimeo account, FBC Jack's Watchdog. This probably explains everything. And this, is, this explains exactly why they went into bankruptcy. Will you do that this week? Who's going to do that? Anybody done that already? No. Really, truly, I mean, there are times when I have forgotten, and then all of a sudden, and sometimes I've had to go, ooh, 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 I got a new attitude, but I do feel better, and then I force myself to do it again. Ooh, 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 I'm forcing myself to stay with this video. Holy guacamole. I got a new attitude. Ooh, yeah, oh boy, do I ever. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> wow. Um. How do I move along from that? I know. I'll read the story from the Christian Post. Author Anugram Kumar uh, 
writes, the headline is uh, Schuler Coleman Breaks Away from the Crystal Cathedral. Uh, it was uh, Senior Pastor Sheila Schuler Coleman's last Sunday at the Crystal Cathedral Garden Grove building in Orange County, California. She announced that she is starting a new church. Poor people. Anyway, Hope Center of Christ will be the name of the church. Coleman, a daughter of the Crystal Cathedral founder, Dr. Robert H. Schuler, expects to find a location for her breakaway church this week. She said in a video message posted on the church's new website that they would announce where the church would meet for worship in the next few days. It would not be more than five or ten minutes from the old building, she added. Soon after the, her announcement, a Crystal Cathedral pastor told congregants that regular Sunday services will continue in the famed glass building, and members were free to decide where they'd like to uh, be next Sunday morning, according to the Orange County Register. We are very sad, very, very sorry about this. Pastor Emeritus Juan Carlos Ortiz, who began the Hispanic ministry for the Crystal Cathedral, was quoted as saying, I hope they both have successes, those who stay and those who leave. Uh, the split comes a day after the founder and his wife, Arvella Schuler, announced their resignation from the board of the megachurch, saying that they had lost hope of settling disputes with the directors over copyright infringement and payment for services in a positive atmosphere. Coleman said Jim Penner, former executive producer for the Hour of Power television program, and Scott and Debbie Smith, who headed the church's music program, were coming with her to the new church. Penner appear, appeared alongside Coleman in the video posted on hopecenteroc.org, he said that they would soon spread their mission around the world by television and the Internet. Um, I would just take that as a warning. You know how, um, yeah, they're going to spread their their mission around the world by television and the Internet. You know how, like, every, right before the winter, the Center for Disease Control tells you to go out and get a flu shot and, you know, and warns you about the spread of, you know, the flu and other, you know, deadly type viruses um, and, you know, and to be, you know, wash your hands and things like that. Yeah, Penner and Coleman said they're going to spread their mission around the world by television and the Internet. Boy, I see that as like a threat. Um, so you might want to take proper precautions to protect yourself and your family. Anyway, the landmark campus of the Crystal Cathedral now belongs to the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange County after an agreement in February for a 57.5 million sale on a court on a court's order. The megachurch had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in, uh, bankruptcy in October 2010. Uh, Crystal Cathedral can continue to worship on the campuses for three years for $100,000 a month during the first year on $150,000 a month for the following two years. Whew, wow. In 2015, the congregation is expected to move out of the campus, which they will serve as the spiritual, which will serve as a spiritual home of 1.2 million Catholics in Orange County. I'm sure they'll fill the place out. It, it looks like a ghost town in there right now. Anyway, after the founder handed over the leadership of the Crystal Cathedral to his family in 2008, the mega church faced numerous challenges, including a growing debt and leadership struggle. Schuler founded the church with a $500 loan on over uh, over 55 years ago. In her final message at the Crystal Cathedral, Coleman reminded the dwindling congregation that despite the sale, they have not lost their house. Where is God's house? Let us never mistake property for God's house. God's house that he wants us, all of us to remain focused on is eternal, she said, stressing that their home is in heaven with Jesus. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, um... 
I think the folks there at FBC Jack's Watchdog got it right. That probably explains why they went into bankruptcy. Really, really, really bad psychological, pop psychological preaching that really isn't biblical. And you know, like taking that song New Attitude and making it Christian. There's the solution. When you're having a bad attitude, just say, ooh, 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 ooh. I've got a new attitude. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. If you're attending a church that tells you you just need to have a be attitude and say, ooh, 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 I have a new attitude, run. They're not preaching the Bible at all. Run. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 Three, eight. Okay, moving along here, looking at our time, I, I wanted to get to this uh, Christian Post story by Brittany Smith. And uh, the, the name of the uh, story is, uh, Should Churches Go All Out Marketing uh, Easter Services? Okay, the, the Brittany writes, she says, With Easter now a month away, many churches are preparing for their upcoming services. And to help the uh, website churchmarketingsucks.com, ay ay ay. Yeah, I'm aware of that site. It just every time I read it, it just makes me go. Ugh. Anyway, the website churchmarketingsucks.com is providing tips, uh, branding designs, billboard ideas, cards, and flyers for churches to market themselves for Easter. The website states more people are willing to come to church on Easter than any other day of the year. So why not go all out, right? But some who have their finger on the pulse of the church and culture are not so sure. Matthew Anderson, author and church culture blogger, told the Christian Post that he understands the church's desire to spread the news of Easter, but there's a danger that lies in advertising and marketing as it can often render the church's services as an event rather than the most unique thing in the world. Marketing in the church is not a new phenomenon, but because of it, the church has become attraction-focused and event-driven, he observed. The church, he said, needs to start looking again at its missional focus. Not sure what that is, but you know, look back at the mission focus, if you would. Billboards, gimmicks, and the church marketing strategies remove the individual cost from proclaiming the message. We have painless ways of bringing people into church, inviting your friends and neighbors. Uh, there should be a cost there, Anderson said. Dr. John Harden, a historian of business and religion in America, told the Christian Post that church marketing not only changes how people relate or who a church is bringing in, but it also shifts the authority from producer to consumer. 
Instead of looking to sacred texts and traditions to shape their doctrine and services, churches rely on the preferences of potential customers, he said. Great quote. Dr. John Harden is spot on. An important distinction in church marketing is that it is different in its consumer focus and discriminatory methods, he explained. Whereas advertising informs all people about a product, marketing, on the other hand, alters the product to appeal to a select group of people. Great point. And because of this focus on customers, Hardin said the church tends to focus its attention horizontally in attracting new people, and that causes them to lose their vertical focus on God. Often, proponents of church marketing argue that a church can remain faithful to its calling by what Hardin calls a bait-and-switch method. He explained that a church might attract people into, into its net by saying it will satisfy worldly desires and then shift its message to provide Christian doctrine once they're in. The problem, Hardin said, is, as the old saying goes, what you win them with is what you, uh, is what you win them to. The switch doesn't work out. And if it ever and if it ever comes, because people came for the bait, Chris Roseborough, that would be me, an apologist and host of the radio program Fighting for the Faith, also used a fishing analogy when describing the effects of church marketing for Easter. He said the early church saw evangelism as casting a net by preaching the word. Early evangelists believed that God would put the fish in the net and that they didn't need any bait to lure them in except for the preaching of the gospel. Roseboro said that that kind of fishing for both fish and men described in the Bible was not lure fishing, but net fishing. He likened Easter marketing to lure fishing, and even though Roseboro doesn't think that marketing in and of itself is bad or good, it is how it is used that makes it so. For him, if people are drawn to a church because of the marketing, the real test has to be about what they are confronted with. The bottom line is that Easter is about the most amazing thing that ever happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he stressed, but too often churches think that they have to create an experience for attendees. Nowhere in Scripture does it say the job of the church is to create an experience, he said. For Roseboro, a church has failed in presenting the Easter message if people leave and are not talking about Jesus and rather are talking about the show. And I think that's a good way of putting it, if I can say so myself. And see, that's the idea. A lot of churches are going to engage in marketing. In fact, you're going to be getting a lot of flyers in the mail or postcards if you happen to live near a metropolitan area and there's a lot of seeker-driven churches in and around your area. You might even see billboards and stuff like that. But here's the question. At the end of the day, if the people show up as a result of your marketing efforts for your church and they leave going, wow, that was a great show, have you really succeeded? Or if after they leave, they say, what an amazing savior we have. Wow, I never knew that about Jesus. Well, in that case, um, then I think you have succeeded. You know, so it's, it really comes down to you know what's going to happen once they get there. Are they going to hear about the crucified and risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, Son of God, true God of you know true God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, and was raised again on the third day? They're going to hear that. Or are they going to hear, you know, five easy life tips to make your budget balance? You know, things like that. So anyway, again, if you want to read that article, you can find it at the Christian Post. It was published on March 9th. And the name of it is Should Churches Go All Out Marketing Easter Services? Okay, moving along.
These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. And their rendition of Strauss's Thus Sprague Zarathustra. Doug Padgett, conducting. Avant-garde tour de force. That is so awful. It just <laughs> brings a smile to my face every single time. So, uh, a, a emergent <clears throat> um, postmodern um, author, uh, Diana Butler Bass, has an article that has recently appeared at the um, at the Washington Post, and the name of it is "Is Religion Dying or Reinventing?" <laughs> well, I think Christianity's committing suicide, but. Huh. Anyway, Diana Butler Bla Blass. Bass writes, she says, for decades, uh, uh, Americans have been turning towards spirituality as a protest vote against conventional religion. In the last dozen years, American religious institutions have undergone a myriad of crises, crises abuse, scandals, conflict, schism, and partisan political entanglements, to name a few. Uh, resulting in a greater religious recession. Poll after poll reveals that organized religions, mainline Protestant, evangelical, Roman Catholic, and Jewish are in various states of disarray and decline, sadness, even doom, has gripped many congregations as they formerly faithfully disaffiliate and those who remain struggle to pay clergy and fix leaky roofs. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the way she, you know, describes the current state of Christianity in churches, I mean, this ought to be proof liberalism doesn't work, either postmodern liberalism or any other kind. Anyway, the bored and the wounded have fled religion seeking new spiritual connections. Some 30% of Americans now identify as spiritual, but not religious. Around 9% are atheists and post-theists. But the growth of these two groups is not the news. The, their numbers have been rising for 30 years. What is new? Well, in my research, it's the ands. The ands. A-N-D-S. Ands. Those who say that they are spiritual and religious. Hmm. In 1999, 54% of Americans said that they were religious but not spiritual. While 6% said spiritual and religious. By 2009, the percentage had reversed. Religious but not spiritual fell from 54% to 9% as the spiritual and religious rose from a mere 6% of the population to nearly half. An astonishing 42-point change. Ands, that would be the ands, they, they want religion revolutionized by spirituality. <laughs> okay. They want spirituality grounded upon but not guarded by ancient wisdom, theologies, and practices. They demand more authenticity, meaning justice, and community from religious institutions, not less. 
In these longings, the Anns voice an older way of understanding religion where faith should and must be an experience of God that transforms one's life for the sake of the world. If the Anns are the vanguard of change, then the great religious recession is about to give way to a great spiritual awakening. Is this the end of religion or only the beginning of a new and better form of faith? Oh, man. In, in the great turning and influential book about contemporary prospects for human community, David Corton asks, By what name will our children and our children's children call our time? They will speak in anger and frustration of the time of the great unraveling, or will they look back in joyful celebration on the noble time of the great turning when the forebears turned crisis into opportunity and brought forth a new era of human possibility. Good night. Seriously? You'll notice what the problem here is, right? Have you figured it out? It's The problem is, is that basically we can just make our own religion. We just make our own form of Christianity. You know, the cons- the religious consumer out there, the Ands, they, they want, you know, authenticity and religious experience. Where have I heard all of this before? Oh, I know. I remember it was the mid part of the last decade, you know, six, seven years ago when the missional incarnational emergent guys and their, you know, and all of this stuff. This is like. I remember a few well, was a couple months ago I did that segment where it's like I I played the Blues Brothers you know where John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd are saying we're getting the band back together. Well, the the emergent band is back together and they're, it's like they picked up right where they left off. You know, seriously, I don't care what you know what David Corton asks or any of that kind of stuff. I this is I call this not the great turning, but the great apostasy, the great rebellion against God and His Word. That's what this is. I mean, like somehow we can recraft our own Christianity and call it authentic. Anyway, the questions are good ones. Diana Butler Pass points out, uh, and, and ones that point to the fact that we must make some choices in our day, as the con- as, as he contrasts the old order as empire and the emerging one as earth community. Uh, what? <laughs> uh oh, earth community. Who? <clears throat> hmm. What famous? Um, 20th century worldview slash political system emphasize the community. Mm, I know, fascism. Okay, so the questions are good ones that point to the fact that we must make some choices in our day as he contrasts the old order as empire mm-hmm, and the emerging one as earth community. Empire can no longer be sustained. Earth community is the way forward. Human beings must turn away from the former to create the latter. Oh, yikes. But the great turning is is not inevitable, as Corton says. Oh, good, we can stop it. <clears throat> Quote, we must, <laughs> we must each be clear that every individual and collective choice we make is a vote for the future. Well, good, I'm voting that we go backwards to biblical historic orthodoxy. Anyway, the great turning is an, uh, is a, is an awakening, a movement to reorient human culture towards connectedness. Economic equality, democracy, creation, and spirituality. The great turning awakens us to becoming fully human. What does any of that mean? And really, how really how can you promise such a thing? An awakening is a ho- is holy geography. Really, 
an awakening is holy geography. What does that, what does the word holy in geography mean in that sentence? When I think about holy geography, I think of, you know, places like Jerusalem, the Sea of Galilee, you know, you know, the empty tomb, you know, places like that, holy geography. But apparently this awakening is holy geography, which means the word geography doesn't mean anything. Anyway, awakenings imply new awareness, inner transformation, a change of heart and mind, and a reordering of earthly things. Corton claims that spirituality will play a key role in the great turning. Mm -hmm. But what of religion? By what name will our children and grandchildren call the early 21st century? The great apostasy, I'm telling you. Anyway, will it be called the great unraveling of Christianity? Yeah, I think so. The time when religion was part of the old order, the things that went wrong, when church organized the gods on behalf of the collapsing empire, when it all fell apart. You know who was also a... Well, not, I shouldn't speak of him in the past tense, but do you know who also has a history of uh, talking about empire and imperial framing stories and things like that? Brian McLaren. Insofar as religion was guardian and priest of the old order, it will have to give way and is already doing so. Western Christendom has ended. A Christian America survives as mythic memory and political slogan. Some suggest that a new Christendom is found in Africa, Latin America, or Asia. That's merely placing old imperial dreams on new geographies of faith. Again, what does the word geography mean in this sentence? Anyway, uh, and the whole vision of some new global South Christendom does not really mesh with historical, economic, or political realities of the contemporary world. If not a new Christendom, then what? In some places like Europe and Australia, perhaps religion will give way to the secular. In others, it'll give way to an eclectic and generalized sort of spirituality. But there is another choice as well, the longing sounded by those who place hope in the end that religion may be transformed and renewed by spirituality <sighs> man this can happen in christianity even in worn out uh, any filled western christianity for it has happened time and time again in the last two millennia and it can happen in islam and hinduism and judaism and other religions as well indeed if the great turning is all about global community Boy, that word just makes me cringe. The great turning is about global community. <sighs> That's it. I'm moving to North Dakota and digging a bunker. All right. Oh, man, I, I last thing I want to do is participate in a global community. I don't think that would go well. Indeed, if the great turning is about global community, then religion with uh, churches, churches, buildings, and doctrines is an essential component of global renewal. According to World Values Survey, the vast majority of the world's people, uh, people's uh, world's people, believe in God and say that their religion plays an important role in their lives. World Values Survey data prove two distinct and seemingly contradictory theses: one, religion declines as society becomes more successful, and two, that the role and importance of religion is increasing worldwide. In other words, in a global context, religion cannot simply be dismissed when searching out paths of human happiness and meaning. No matter how fractious, wounded, irksome, hypocritical, or potentially destructive it can be, religion makes a difference, especially in the lives of the disadvantaged, the oppressed, and the poor. Even Christopher Hitches admits that religion will never die out, at least not until we get over our fear of death and of the dark and of the unknown and of each other. What the world needs is better religion, new forms of old faith. Oh, nice. Ah. Really, when, when when did humanity get the ability to just invent their own religions? I mean, 
Christianity is a revealed religion, not a human-invented one. Yikes. Okay, so what the world needs is better religion, new forms of old faiths, religion reborn on the basis of deep spiritual connection. These things need to be explored instead of ditching religion completely. We need religion imbued with the spirit of shared humanity and a hope not religions that divide and further fracture the future. Oh, no, man. Okay, so <laughs> um, if I told you that that particular news story from the Washington Post made me absolutely nervous, um, <laughs> it should make you nervous, too. <laughs> Global community, yeah, we don't want those fractious kinds that divide the community. No, no, no. We want the spiritual kind, the and kind, that helps us all... Um, <clears throat> embrace a global community. Oh, man, this is bad. All right, um, I'm going to go wash my brain with something. Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on, well, this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there. At Pirate Christian, we'll be right back with a sermon about how to budget. You know, were you looking for practical sermon advice on why you need to budget your money? Well, look no further. We got it right on the other end of the break. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Talk about adventures and missing the point. Wait till you hear this sermon. Yeah, we're just reinventing Christianity. We can just preach whatever we want to preach about. You know, about spirituality, authenticity. Just make up your own stuff. Oh, you know, and budgeting, too, because, you know, budgeting is really important. I think everybody should, you know, be a spiritual budgeter. I wish I was joking. Here we go. Oh, 
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via 12 Stone Church, Lawrenceville, Georgia. Kevin Myers presiding. The name of the sermon series is Economic Atheist. Oh, man. <laughs> Just feel like I'm going to need to walk away from this. Anyway, the na- the subhead, the particular sermon in the sermon series, Economic Atheist, is entitled, Why You Budget? Have you ever figured, why should I budget? You know, I mean, why, why should I do this? Well, here's some spiritual experiential device to help you in the coming, you know, global community of spirituality. Not in a way that, well, teaches doctrine that would divide the global community, but in a way that would pra- give practical advice that would fit, you know, help you have skills in the new upcoming global community. All right, let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here's the uh, relevant, life-changing, transformational preaching of Kevin Myers, 12 Stone Church, and the Economic Atheist uh, sermon series, Why You Budget. Here we go. Let me lay the economic cycle out for you. You might want to write it on your notes. So, grow, harvest. Mm-hmm. We even have it now to the 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 economic cycle is so grow and harvest. Okay. we know is really going on is this is where you plow and plant and then you move into the grow and the grow i would depict as weeds wait a second my mom told me that money doesn't grow on trees what are you talking about and wait for the first three years you're going to have to let growth occur don't shortcut the process let it have its time to economically mature. And the fourth year, you get your first harvest. That's God's. And in the fifth year and following, you are going to be incredibly prosperous. This is the economic cycle. Now you'll take oh, wow. The that. A church is going to teach me how to be economically prosperous. Wow. Sign me up. And you'll keep the whole thing going. So welcome to 12 Stone in week three of Economic Atheists, where we are challenging the four most defining questions in your economic life, how you work. I mean, seriously, did Jesus give economic advice? I'm just, you know, I'm challenging that. How you honor, how you budget, how you Sabbath. Today, how you budget. Now, four or five weeks ago, I made my public confession that this physical body, Marsh's Jungle Gym, was losing its tone. Now, how does that happen? And and really, how do you fix that? How do you get back to fitness? Well, let me take you to the board. Let's talk for a moment. There's a couple of phrases I want you to get down. If you're one of those who love to take notes, you can throw this somewhere on your notes. The first one is, that's enough. Say it with me. What is it? That's enough. 
The second is, that's not enough. Say it with me. That's not enough. This is very simple. How do you get fit? Well, eating for me had gone under the that's not enough category for some time. And I think you know what I mean. Your taste buds, they talk to you. Am I the only one? I I almost hear voices, don't you? You're eating and it says more. That's not enough. And so I give it some more and it says that's not enough. And so you take another bite and you keep eating. And by the time you're done with dinner, you realize that they're still talking. They want dessert. And, and, and so you get dessert and you take a bite and it has a Moorish taste. And so that's not enough. And they say, well, let's just split a dessert. But that's not enough. You have to have the whole dessert. And eating dinner and dessert is not enough. You get home. And when you're watching TV, you feel this voice, this compulsion. How many love to eat while they watch TV or a movie? Do I (laughs) Seriously, this is just like like basic information here. Why do I need to go to church to learn this? I'm serious. I mean, you don't think that most people don't understand how people gain weight? Or, uh, absolutely, it's part of the deal. And that's not enough. You need a late night snack. Do this long enough, you'll be out of shape. How do you get back? It's not really that difficult. Eating has to move from that's not enough to that's enough. It has to move to what? A little more support here, okay? It has to move to what? Notice that this is not grounded in a biblical text. He's just teaching us. I mean, you know, was it Poor Richard's Almanac? I mean, this is like the kind of stuff that Ben Franklin, you know, this, this earthly wisdom kind of stuff. But uh, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. Why isn't he doing that? That's enough. That's all. That's enough high-calorie, empty-calorie, indulgent overeating. That's enough. That's enough bad preaching. Why don't you open up the Bible and actually do your job, Pastor? You have to budget your eating and your exercise. You, You have to give up something you love for something you love more. You might want to write that down. I mean, that's how you get to fitness. You have to give up something you love. Like, Why would I want to write it down? It's not in the Bible. Like indulgent eating for something you love more, like physical fitness. You just budget. And it's the same in finances. You see, if I don't make this decision physically, I'm going to create all kinds of pressure. And I was, particularly on my belt, (laughs) which had gotten to its last rung. All that was left is create another one. <laughs> what about the sermon makes it Christian? I, I'm a little confused here. <laughs> or buy another belt. At some moment, get on us, huh? That's true financially. See, financial budgeting is giving up something you love, like, like spending. For many, spending sits over here in the that's not enough category. And so you just spend and spend. That's not enough. I need more. I want more. And then if you want to get financially fit, you're going to have to move spending over to what? Let me hear it. Over to what? That's enough. 
Really? Wow. Yeah, that's just profound and deep. Mm -hmm. I can get this from any financial advisor. Are, have you been to seminary or have you been to like, you know, are you a CPA? I'm, I'm confused as to what exactly you are at this point. It's all budgeting is. It's trading something you love like financial purchases for something you love more like financial peace. And this is so obvious and so easy to say. Yeah, it's so obvious and so easy to say. Why are you saying it in church? Because your job's to preach the word. They could get financial advice from a financial advisor, but they are not going to hear about Jesus from a financial advisor because they expect to hear about Jesus and God's word from a pastor. Why so difficult to do? from eating to finances. Well, perhaps this broadcast that talks about great ideas, big, really big ideas that change the world, perhaps this thing about consumerism is the answer. Listen in. Just so you know, the audio from this video is not taken anywhere from any passage of any scripture found in the Bible. Many big ideas have struggled over the centuries to dominate the planet. Fascism. Communism. Democracy. Religion. But only one has achieved total supremacy. Its compulsive attractions rob its followers of reason and good sense. It has created unsustainable inequalities that threaten to tear apart the very fabric of our society. More powerful than any cause or even religion, it has reached into every corner of the globe. It is consumerism. But what is consumerism? Isn't it just a posh way to describe shopping? consumers after all we all go shopping and society obviously couldn't function without some level of consumption I'm not talking about consumption here I'm talking about the idea that we should all actively be consuming more and more every year and that this is the best measure of economic progress so consumerism puts consumption at the very heart of the modern economy and everything is done to persuade us to go and consume more advertising hoardings billboards newspapers magazines the tv we are bombarded day in day out by these advertising messages you may think they're all selling you something different different products different brands different lifestyles but at the same time they're selling one big idea that the more we consume the better our lives will be the point consumerism tells us the more we consume the better our lives will be and we tend to buy into that we tend to believe this we tend to think oh yes yes the more the more the more the better my life is we're not only affected but we're infected by this and consumerism how did he say it 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 robs us of reason and good sense. 
See, we all know that that's not enough doesn't exist. You can't live that way physically. You can't live that way financially. And yet, consumerism robs us of the good sense and the reason that would cause us to slip over to the life-changing, hey, that's enough. Yeah, just slip over to the life-changing, that's enough. It's not the... It's not the savior jesus christ it's the new way of looking at oh the new that's that's enough that'll change everything out tr- transform the world in other words we got to build that's enough fences in our lives i need a that's enough fence in my exercising and in my eating my physical fitness needs this budgeting process of a that's enough fence we need that in our finances a that's enough fence you get to the end that's enough See, the book of Leviticus is really built on this idea that God has established principles, guidelines for life, offense. Yeah, you're just going to say, oh, yeah, Leviticus is all about, you know, uh, guidelines for life. Yeah, actually, it's it's the law of Moses given to the children of Israel, and it includes a lot more than just tips for living life in a happy way. On this side of the fence, you're inside the fence of God's favor. You get outside the fence of God's favor. Oh, no. Yeah. You, you, well, when you disobey, you're outside of God's favor. That's true. But how do you get back into God's favor? Just obey your way back? Or do you need to be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus? And you forfeit the blessing that God would want to bring into your life. This side is life. This side is death. This side. Utter confusion of law and gospel. It is blessing inside the fence of God's favor. This side, cursing. Get inside the fence of God's favor. Leviticus describes such fences in dietary, sacrificial offerings. The list goes on. But we're sitting inside this economic that God establishes a theism, if you will, a belief in the one God and principles, fences that guide life. Leviticus Chapter 19. So Leviticus teaches just ordinary theism and moralism. Oy. It's where we want to sit for a moment today and reflect on three lessons that everyone needs to learn when it comes to budgeting. So grab your worship center Bibles. So you're going to preach from Leviticus and teach us biblical principles for budgeting from Leviticus. Oh, I can't wait to see this. Turn with me to page 118, Leviticus chapter 19, page 118. And we're going to sit inside some passages where we've touched on in these first couple weeks of the series. And now let's just go to verse 13 of chapter 19. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Pause. Isn't it interesting? God's talking about something as practical as if you own the field and you have workers, you're the employer, pay them that night. God cares about this? This is just economic, simple stuff. Yes, he does. Because their ability to live. They don't have banks. It's not this kind of a system that we're familiar with. Their ability to live that night and into the next day is getting paid every day. Don't cheat them. God cares about every detail of economics to that degree. Listen in. Next verse. 14. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your your God. I am the Lord. Huh. Look at that. Just don't put a stumbling block. Look, don't take advantage of the disadvantaged economically. This stuff matters to God. Look at the next verse. 
Do not pervert justice. Don't pervert justice. And look how he describes it. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. You know what he's literally saying? Man, if a poor, if a poor person sues a rich person, don't just throw it in favor of the poor. Don't show partiality to the poor because somebody has wealth. And don't show favoritism to the rich. Judge rightly. In fact, let's move up to verse 9 of chapter 19. Just insights on economics. Clues that he's given us. Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land. Of whose land? Your land. Do not reap to the very edges of your field. Look at this. He said, look. Notice he's taken this passage completely out of its historical context. Hoy. Look, you have a field, you're, you have crops, don't reap to the edges. Huh. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Verse 10. Yeah, that's because it was that way in which God provided for those who did not. This You think of this like an early form of welfare back in the nation state of ancient Israel. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Let's talk three lessons that all of us must learn. Otherwise, we add tremendous pressure to our lives financially. Often the undoing kind of pressure of our marriage, our family, our lives, and our future. These three lessons that contribute to financial peace. Here's the first one. You ready? Live inside your budget. Live inside whose budget? Your budget. In fact, why don't you tell your neighbor here across campus. Just Did you note that the fact that the Leviticus 19 says nothing about budgeting at all? It doesn't say anything about budgeting. Just lean over, tell your neighbor, hey, live inside your budget. Go ahead, tell them. Live inside your budget. Yeah, no, hey, hey, I see couples. Don't do it with animosity. <laughs> this isn't counseling right now. Though this is where a lot of pressure lives. Live inside whose budget? Your budget. You see, in fact, I'll take to the, to the whiteboard right here. Look, he, he's saying that there are groups of people and you have your budget. There are the owners, the employers, if you will, in this context. They own the field. And here's what he's telling them. The crops are yours. And that's enough. The crops are yours. Your owners of the field. And what right does God have to say to you as the owner of the field? But the edges are not yours. Well, well, because God owns everything. I think that was his point. <laughs> he created everything. He's the author of everything. He's given you life. And he's given you instructions economically. If you're a theist, you pay attention. These are clues to economic life. The crops are yours. Now he talks about him in the employees. The benefactors, if you will, of the work that's done. And, and they have their limit. They get inside their salary. And then he talks about the non-owners, if you will. The, the, the poor, those who don't own the field. And what he literally says to them, get this, is that the edges are yours. The edges are yours. And that's what? That's enough. You, you all have your budget. Live inside your budget. It was Tony Evans that said, and if we had time, it would be an interesting conversation. This, this has nothing to do with budgeting. Socialism teaches us that the government owns everything. Capitalism teaches us that we own everything. But theism, Christianity, teaches us that God owns everything. And the reality is this. The poor, you get the edges, but don't go take from the crops. They're not yours. The owners, 
The crops are yours, but not the edges. And the employees in between, if you will. And God has given us some insights in how you live with that's enough. In fact, we often talk about it in this language. 10, 10, 80. That there is a pattern to budgeting life. That the first 10% is God's honor God. We talked last weekend. 10, 10, 80. Uh-huh. Yeah, Leviticus doesn't teach 10, 10, 80. You're twisting Leviticus. Ah. You have your Bible. Leviticus chapter, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and go to chapter 19, verse 1. Let's put a little context on this thing because, remember, our three rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and, well, context. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day that you offer it or on the third, on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Fascinating that he just omitted all of that, don't you think? When you, the people of Israel, reap the harvest of your land, what does this mean? It means when they reap the harvest of their land. That's exactly what it means. It means that they're going to take seed of a crop, you know, like wheat or a bean crop or, a, you know, a, you know they're going to have a grape, a vineyard. When they reap the harvest of their land, this isn't allegorical. This is actually literal. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard, vineyard bare. Neither shall you give the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What God is really doing here is providing a provision for in Israel, even for the poor. If somebody hits hard times and their 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 land has been ruined or something terrible has befallen them, they're not going to starve to death because God is ordering those who own land to not harvest everything because it does belong to God, but to leave something for the poor. This is like an early version of welfare. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the of your God. I am the Lord. Yeah, notice... Uh, Kevin Meyer here is, um, well, he's not teaching God's word rightly. This is a form of taking God's name in vain. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. There is nothing in this passage about budgeting. (sighs) 10% save, put margin, because life has all kinds of breakdowns, and you need margin for your present and for your future, and live off the 80%, which is really your tax and your housing and your food and your clothes and your living expenses. And this is challenging for most of us. This passage isn't saying anything about margin either. I was 
coming alongside and helping a guy who's homeless and over a period of time came to realize that he really prefers to be homeless. Honestly, I, I, didn't, I, don't, I can't say I understand that choice, but really prefers to be homeless and prefers not to work. One day while I was in conversation, he was asking for some food and some help. He pulled out his cell phone and made a call. And I was quite surprised. He got done. I said, dude, you own a phone and you have no food? He says, well, man, you have to own a phone. You have to. And I just laughed like some of you are. It's just like, wow. And it's easy for any of us to get confused on what you have to versus want to. Isn't it? I I was reading an article. Doing some economic research it was providing on smartphones. And here's what the article said. Here's the quote. Making less than $15,000 a year doesn't stop 43% of the 25 to 34-year-old customers from paying for a smartphone. For what many consider to be a luxury they call a necessity. Isn't that interesting? See, you're making decisions about what is a have to and what is a want to. I'm not talking about smartphones. I could care less. I don't care if you want to own a smartphone. What's the matter to me? Here's my point. If you want to own a smartphone, make sure it's inside your budget. Yeah? That's what we're talking about. Make sure it's inside your budget. In in other words, you don't go buy the things you want and then expect somebody else in the culture around you to buy the things you need. That's kind of more to the point. It's 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 just to figure out how to live inside your budget. See, this is challenging stuff. You own the crops, you got to live inside that. You pick up the gleans, you live inside that. You're employed, you live inside that. Inside your budget. And we don't have a lot of help with that these days. We can't even look to the leadership of the government of our nation to help us because they're having great difficulty living inside their budget. There's not a lot being modeled here. I'm not, I'm not going to have, I'm just, let's see, we're just going to tell the truth. Just a few facts. Some, sometimes it's helpful to talk the facts because we are living in the wake of principles as a nation and as a people. And we just need to pay attention. We need to be honest about what does it mean to live inside your budget. Because I've heard the conversations, you know, what is needed in the government is, is more money. Let me just walk you through something. This is average household. This is federal income. This is household income for individual households in America. And I'll just take my lifetime. Back from 1961 for the 50 years ago, the average household median income, the median income was $5,700. 50 years later... Last year, the median income is $49,909. That is a plus, an increase of 775% over the 50 years. Federal government, they have gone from, uh, let's see, what's the number? Uh, 94.39 billion was their income 50 years ago in 61. Last year's income, 2.174 trillion. An increase of 2,521%. The government, federal government income has increased three times greater than household income. And if we're supposed to live inside our budget, they need to live inside their budget. It's a very simple principle in life. 
And listen, I'm not talking about politics here because some people immediately get confused. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian. I don't care where you associate yourself. These are principles of finance. And finance doesn't work. There is no financial fitness unless you learn to live inside your budget. And it's easy for us to talk about the government. I can't even solve those problems at the macro level. That's not mine. But you know what? Why don't we talk about the micro? Because we can talk about that and say, yeah, they should. But what about us? How are you doing? living inside your budget. And so, to help us, I asked Kevin Queen to give us a six, seven minute, very practical, tangible, how you do budgeting. Take note. It's worth the time. Very helpful. Listen in. Yeah, it's so practical, but this isn't biblical. been looking forward to this chance for me to sit down with you and share a principle, something that I learned when I was younger that stayed with me. It's, it's changed the way that I, I handle money. And some have called it the 10-10-80 principle. Um, I want to share it with you as actually the give, save, live principle. So give, save. Mm-hmm. Is this taught in the Bible? And live. Now, this is a way of prioritizing the way that we handle our money. And if you if you choose not to have priorities, you're going to choose to live with pressure your entire life. See, Gasp, that sounds terrible. So you got to save me from that. See, the prioritization is what is what creates margin in our lives. This space on the cup, this is the margin of the cup. And if the cup didn't have margin, it'd be a mess. It'd create a mess. Everything would, would spill over and create a mess all over the place. And, and people live with a mess all over the place financially when they don't have margin in their life with their finances. So we're going to talk about through these priorities is how you create margin in your life. Now, let's, let's just say you get a job. And uh, let's say the job's at Chick-fil-A. And payday's going to come. And so you end up... On payday, you end up making $10. So we're going to put these cups out here. And this represents the give, save, and live. So what's the first priority? Well, the first priority is the tithe. It's 10%. It's giving the first 10% back to God. It's, a, it's an offering back to Him because you want to be a candidate for favor. You want to live underneath His umbrella of blessing. So you, get, you give back. I want to be a candidate for favor. So I'm not even a candidate for God's favor unless I apply this principle. Good night. To God, you honor him. The second decision that you make is to save. But that's in the ideal world. And many of us, we live in the real world. And in the real world, what tends to happen is we tend to accumulate living expenses that take the rest of what we have. Now, we all have living expenses. We've got a place to stay, and we've got food to eat, and we've got to put clothes on our back. But what happens is when this gets... What have you guys done with Jesus and his word? I'm curious. You got him hogtied in the back of your church? What have you done with him? It's out of control. Everything goes toward that. But you've been doing the hard work. You've been figuring out how to squeeze money from your budget. And so let's just say you cut back on going out to eat many times a week. And then, or, or let's say you, you started carpooling or, or that you started buying store brand at the grocery store. You've done the hard work and you've saved $2. Now you've got this $2 to put toward save, but not just yet. I want to talk about a critical point that many people overlook, and we're going to call it the Weeds Happen Fund. Does the Bible teach the Weeds Happen Fund? And so I want to press pause on save. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the weeds. The weeds happened because the enemy sowed them. That's probably what's going on in this sermon. And bring into play 
the Weeds Happen. And so in order to build this Weeds Happen fund, let's just say $1,000 that you want to save up for emergency. Um, you've got these $2 to put toward that, but you've also, through creativity, you've figured out other ways to get more money. Let's just say you sold that treadmill that you got for Christmas. Uh, you sold that treadmill on Craigslist. Um, it was supposed to be for your resolution, but you uh, you get one dollar. And and let's let's also say that you know those those jeans that you bedazzled and uh, and you sold those online on on eBay. Uh, you got we're going to talk about you bedazzling uh, clothes. We'll talk about that later. But you get another dollar, and so now you've got four dollars to put toward weeds happen. You're building up this fund, and the good news is another payday comes. And when another payday comes. You have a priority to make. You have a decision to make. It's that first decision to honor God. Then we've got that to stick to that budget that we set. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And so seven goes to that budget. This leaves the remaining two for weeds happen. Now, surprise, surprise, is good news. You got, a, you got your tax return back. So another $2 goes to weeds happen. This closes out your weeds happen fund because emergencies are going to happen. You're now prepared for that. So we're just going to move that over here for a time of emergency. This brings save back into play. And so you might think, well, now it's time to save, but not just yet. I want to talk about another area, and that's debt. The strangest thing is that this is a sermon at a Christian church. This is ridiculous. What on earth does this have to do with anything in the Bible? Good news. It's payday. Another payday comes, and you've been honoring God with first fruits. God's blessed you. You got a raise. You got yeah. That's because you've made yourself a candidate for God's blessing. You're not a candidate unless you, of course, you know, you bless God with your first fruits. Thirteen dollars now, and you know what? It's a good thing your birthday's rolled around. And surprise, surprise, your grandmother sent you a card. Yeah, I feel like I need an abacus for the sermon. And you got a dollar in the card, so that's add another dollar to the mix. And so now you've got a decision to make. What's your first priority? Is to honor God with the tithe. And so we'll put two in here. Dollar uh, dollar forty would be toward that first fruits, honoring God. Sixty cents. Let's say it goes it goes above and beyond the tithe, or to, to support a, a mission trip. And so you've made that decision. The second priority is to continue to stick to that. Continue to stick to that budget. Three, four, five, six, seven. It goes and your live fund. This leaves one, two, three, four, five to go toward debt. Now let's talk for debt. Let's talk about debt for a second. In this strategy, you want to attack the lowest debt that you have first. This is called the snowball effect. And you'll attack the lowest debt. And Does the Bible teach the snowball effect? After you pay that off, you'll pay the next lowest and continue to go until you pay off the highest debt. And so here's the good news. Good news is you continue this strategy, eventually you're debt free. Close that out. And now that we've closed out debt, now it's time to start saving. And this is the time where you can begin to accumulate wealth. And so what we want to do is we want to make saving the second priority. So this means honoring God's the first priority, second priority is saving, and the third priority is living expenses. So the good news is another payday comes. And on that first priority, decision you make is to honor God, first fruits. But now you have margin. Now you can begin to save and accumulate wealth. And then, because it's 10, 10, 80, now you have $8 to go toward living expenses. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Which leaves you with three. 
and this is margin. You can make a decision about what you want to do with this. Maybe you want to go above and beyond and give to God. Maybe you want to begin to save and continue to build up and accumulate wealth. Or maybe you want to take this and just have fun. But now you have options. And uh, you know what? You hear this and you might think, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm working with. This is all I've got. Or maybe you're listening to it you're thinking, this is the lifestyle that I have. This is what I've got to work with. But the reality is, no matter where you're at, the 10-10-80 applies. It's the principle that applies. So here you are with $3. Speaking of having fun, I've got $3 left. You want to go get some ice cream? Yeah. <laughs> okay, come on. Everyone has to live inside. And they're applauding that. Oh, man. Their budget. You have to put up the that's enough fence and you have to navigate your finances to sit inside that. And we have to learn that ourselves and pass that on to the next generation. These need to be the economic principles of our lives. And can I just say something? What this really relies on is self-leadership. On what? Let's say it again. On what? Self-leadership. That's why it's our next series. After this Economic Atheist series, we're going to talk about three qualities in self-leadership that absolutely change your life. That's why you want to be in on that series. What it means to dig in, dig out, so to speak. And by the way... There's going to be a fun factor, a cool factor in that series that is off the hook. Can't wait for it. All I'm going to do is give you a hint. Think racing. And having said that, bring cameras, invite wildly. It's going to be a great series. Well, let's get back to where we are. Point number two. Here we go. Second lesson. Everyone does not have the same. Everyone does not have the what? The same budget. No, really? I had no idea. You see, the owners had one budget, if you will, and that's enough. Live off the crops. Employees had a, a, another budget, live off from what you make. The poor, in that sense, had the edges, live off that. And here's the reality. We don't all have the same budget. And that troubles some of us because it doesn't seem fair. We've heard it should be fair so long in our lives that we start believing that this is what the world should be like. Everybody should have the same stack of Skittles. Everybody should have the same bag. The reality is, though, in life, is that it looks more like each of these containers. That the distribution is different. Because God doesn't seem to give everybody the same bag, does he? Have you, does God give everybody the same talents? Same level of talent? Same opportunity? Same ability? Does God, does God give everybody the same? He does not. Even when he tells a story of giving five talents of money to one and Two talents of money to another, one talent of money to another. See, in that whole breakdown of the scenario, that's not fair. So then maybe God's not fair in the way we think fair. Of course, God only expects return on what he's entrusted to you, and that is fair. And the reality is in the course of life that God has entrusted some to us. And so our skittles, so to speak, fill up our possessions, our stuff. And we're like, oh, God, that's awesome. In fact, Lord, that's a really good experience there. Could we just do a little bit more? He says, yeah, let's fill that up for you. We're like, oh, God, see, that's how I want my life to be. And we kind of like this idea. We say, oh, God, that's a good amount. That, I kind of need that. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm like, but here's the reality. We often feel like that one's not ours. <laughs> we feel like what we got is right next door. What we got handed is the boot. 
And we're looking over here and we're like, God, what is that? That's, that's not fair. I got the boot. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with the boot. L- listen, you can live on the boot. There's enough here. It's all you need. But this is what you greed. And something of greed can creep in any of us. Take your Bibles again. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Page 1043, Luke chapter 12. And I'm just going to read a segment. There's a moment in time when Jesus is teaching to the crowd. And here's what it tells us in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man... Who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? And then he said to them, now he's talking to the crowd. Then he says to the crowd, watch out. Do what? Watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. All kinds of what? Say it with me. Greed. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, of Skittles. Now, see, this is troubling because... This one is most likely the younger brother. And the elder brother is getting all the Skittles. And, and, and the younger brother feels like he got the boot. And he says, Jesus, tell him to share. Look at my brother. He's full of greed. And Jesus uses this opportunity to expose the younger brother's greed. Let me just say this. It's very difficult to point out somebody's greed without... You're going to stop there. You're not going to read the whole context of the passage. There's more to this passage, by the way. Let's see if he actually teaches it. ...about exposing your own. And Jesus says, be very careful. See, we're entirely capable of spending our lives looking this direction. Of course, we're not looking back here. It looks like he's going to skip it. So uh, let me fill in the missing portion of this, because all he's doing is ripping verses out of context. This is Bible hopscotch without ever actually teaching coherently what a passage is actually saying. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Hmm. Yeah, when you put it back in context, it doesn't seem to be teaching the Skittle um, principle. Back here where somebody has less. Oh, no, we weren't, but we weren't looking that way. Oh, oh, see, there's always somebody with more. There's always somebody with less. Oh, and this too is enough to meet your needs. What we were really doing is we were looking down here, weren't we? 
Come on. Lord, in my prayer time, I have asked you to pour out a blessing so great that I cannot contain it. Bring it. Oh, yeah. Just keep it going, Lord. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, to the top, to the top. Oh, God. That's awesome. That's what I'm looking for, God. And you know what we tend to think? We tend to think that the more you move up this line, the more blessed you are. In fact, let me just go further. You know what we also tend to think? The more you move down this line, the more holy you are. And both are wrong. Listen, God's blessings are not limited to Skittles, (laughs) the stuff of life. Well, thank God for that. His blessing over a marriage and a family, relational blessing, spiritual blessing. You see, every one of these are blessed. Look how he blessed the poor. He, he, he gave them, if you will, just handfuls here of the gleanings. That's enough. God so blessed the poor in that context that he made sure that those who had ownership would... This is not a coherent biblical teaching. This is actually very aggravating. ...would have left some for them. So you can be at any stage in life and be blessed by God. And holy is not how much or how little you have. It's how you manage what you have. Are you handling it in a holy way? See, you tend to look this way and that cultivates greed. Does it bother you that neither the Leviticus passage nor the passage from Luke, I mean, when you put it back in context, neither of those passages are teaching any of these things he's saying. He's making up his own theology and trying to create the impression that this is a biblical teaching, and it's not. Sometimes we look that way and we get a sense it cultivates gratitude. But the key is, you brought nothing into this world and you will take nothing out. Godliness with contentment with whatever he's given you is great gain. We don't all have the same budget. But we're going to have to learn how to live within our budget, not looking at anybody else's. And that can be difficult because that's enough is a tough fence for many of us. But that's not the last lesson. There's a third lesson in the teaching. Drop this down in your notes. Budget to share with those in need. Budget to what? Share with those in need. See, he gets done... And God's telling the owner, don't touch the edges. Don't go over it a second time. Your your world needs to include those who are in need. That's not just Old Testament. In fact, he goes broader in the New Testament. It, It really touches all of our lives, what it means to share with those in need. Look on screen, Ephesians chapter 4. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to eat for himself. No, I didn't say that. Although that's probably part of the thought. Here, that he may have something for his future. No, that, that's, it's in Scripture, other places, not here. Here's what he's saying. That he may have something to what? Share, to have something that what? Share with those in need. 
You see, God is reminding us that there is an economic principle in play. You sow, you grow, you harvest. And when you harvest one of the fences... Mm, so God's reminding us of an economic principle that's in play that's nowhere taught in so many words in the Bible. Mm-hmm. As you put inside your finances is you not only honor God first, but you make margin for other people. And that's a way that you sow right back into your life. And God leverages that to multiply blessing in your life. You become a candidate for God's blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where does the Bible talk about how you become a candidate for God's blessings by doing this? Where does it say that? How are you doing budgeting? Yeah, you're not a candidate for God's blessings unless you budget. Nelson Searcy authored a book, The Generous Ladder. And in the Nelson Searcy is not a biblical author. This he tells a, a story of Stephen King, the horror novelist, and, and comments Stephen King's not usually the first guy you would turn to get a biblical insight on finances. Yeah, not even the second or third person I go to. Yeah, biblical insight on finances. Stephen King. Yeah, not even on my list. And yet, at a commencement speech at Vassar University, there's an excerpt of something he shared that's worth all of us listening to. Let me read it. Here's what he tells us. A couple of years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you really means. I found out while I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out of the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. Oh, I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. See, we all know that life is ephemeral. But on that particular day and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett going to go out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Stephen King, broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's, it's still going to be a quarter past getting late whether you tell time on a Timex or a Rolex. No matter how large your bank account, no matter how many credit cards you have, sooner or later things will begin to go wrong with the only three things you have that you can really call your own, your body, your spirit, your mind. So I want you to consider. I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. We have the present power to help, the power to change. And why should we refuse? Because we're going to take it with us? Please. Giving is a way of taking the focus off the money we make and putting it back where it belongs, on the lives we lead, the families we raise, the communities that nurture us. A life of giving, not just money, but time, spirit, repays. It repays. It helps 
us remember that we may be going out broke, but right now we're doing okay. Right now we have the power to do great good for others and for ourselves. So I ask you to begin giving and to continue as you began. I think you'll find in the end that you got far more than you ever had and did more good than you ever dreamed. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. Don't you find it odd that he did a far better job of quoting Stephen King in context and made sure to get the full thought of what Stephen King said, but he didn't even really do the same thing for God. No, we got two verses, two passages completely ripped out of context and avoiding the point of both of them. But no, we're going to quote Stephen King's a long section of a quote from Stephen King in context so we know what Stephen King said, but not God. In other words, Stephen King got a better handling, got treated better than God did in this sermon. It's almost like Stephen King was studying Leviticus and Ephesians 4. I don't think so. You see, giving yourself away is hardwired in you. You're created in the image of a generous creator. Yeah, and we're all sinful, born dead in trespasses and sins by nature. Budget to share with others. So as I turn the service over to the campus pastors, let's close with some questions. Are you living inside your means, your budget? Are you practicing that's enough lines in your life? How are you doing with have to versus want to? And when you go out on date night this week and jump into this website and the questions, do you need to re-listen to Kevin Queen's teaching segment there? And would all of us join together in the conclusion right at the bottom of your notes? Make margin for others. Greed is for economic atheists. I pray that we will. In fact, let's bow our heads together. And pray. No, I'm not going to let you pray. Man, absolutely frustrating and aggravating. The job of a pastor is to preach the word, and that guy did not. Kevin Myers did not actually preach God's word. And it aggravates me, and it ins- it, basically I feel insulted for God, that God wouldn't even get the, you know, the, the, the right treatment to have God quoted correctly. But Stephen King, the horror writer, got treated better than Jesus and God's word. Unbelievable. And what does this do? I mean, there, there was no gospel here. There was no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no Jesus, except for Jesus, you know, it was quoted just ever so slightly in passing out of context. You know, he showed the greed of that younger guy. Yet you missed the whole point of the text. And folks, this is what passes for preaching in so many churches. This is not biblical. This isn't Christianity. This is something completely different. Makes me wonder if this is all part of what will eventually lead to Diana Butler Bass's concept of the earth community. Whole bunch of people feeling, oh, well, I just listened to something spiritual because the pastor quoted a couple of verses from the Bible, and now I know how to spiritually budget. 
yeah, at the end of the day, the folks there are still economic atheists with an em emphasis on the word atheist because they've learned nothing, absolutely nothing about their great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for them. Instead, they're, well, they now think that budgeting is a spiritual practice. Yeah, and if you do that, you know, well, then you're going to make yourself a candidate for blessing. Oh, look, God, look, I'm now budgeting. I'm a candidate for God's blessing. The Bible doesn't teach anything of the sort. This is the kind of preaching that sends people to hell. Man, this frustrates me. All right, well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.